Uh, welcome. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to John chapter 1. This Advent season, we have been walking through the prologue to John's gospel, the first 18 verses of the first chapter of John. And in this prologue, we have learned a number of things about the Word, the eternal Logos, Jesus. We learned first that in the beginning was the Word, that Jesus is eternal, that He is creator, that He is in fact God. We learned that the Word was the light, and the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness, try as it may, it could not, it would not overcome it. And we learned last week that the Word brought new life, that those who received Him, who believed in His name because they had been born again of God, they were given the right to become children of God, adopted into His family. And this morning, we're going to cover the final section of the prologue to John's gospel in verses 14 through 18, where we will be confronted with the reality that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator of the universe, the God of all gods, the maker of stars and galaxies, the maker of you and I, took on flesh and became one of us. This morning, I want us to pause and just revel in the wonder of that statement that the Word became flesh. How did it happen? Why did it happen? And what are the implications for us today? Because it did happen. So let's read John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this season for us to just pause and consider the miracle of the Incarnation, Your eternal plan to send your son into this world to become one of us to live a perfectly righteous life and to die in our place on the cross father we thank you for the incarnation the the baby in the manger we thank you for the trigger that began that plan of redemption father we ask that you'd speak through your word this morning father to us so that through reveling in the wonder of that thought, you might continue your work of sanctifying saints and saving sinners for your glory. In the end, Father, we ask that you would be glorified as we consider what you have done for us in Christ. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want us to primarily focus on verse 14 and consider three incredible statements that John makes there. And the first is simply that, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That is one of, if not the, greatest miracle in the history of time and space. The Word. We know the Word is Jesus, the eternal Logos, that He is eternal. He didn't begin in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. He, he, he is eternal. He is creator. He is God. The Word became, that word became doesn't mean began because He didn't begin there. He was born there. That word became means born that he was made into what flesh that the word became flesh that word literally means skin that he took on a a human body and became one of us this is absolutely jaw-dropping and mind-boggling if we stop for a moment and really consider what this means that the eternal omnipotent all-knowing omnipresent God who created the heavens and the earth, the stars, the galaxies, you and I, he took on flesh and become, became one of us. And in becoming one of us, he didn't, by the way, lose any of his godness. He didn't become any less God in taking on humanity. He was, in fact, fully God and fully man at the same time, who is this one who became man? John said of him in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the eternally pre-existent Son of God, who is himself God. The writer of Hebrews says of him that he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature. Paul says of him in Colossians 1 verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. The invisible God made visible through this God-man. Four verses later in Colossians 1, he says that all the fullness of God dwells in him. All that it means to be God dwells in Jesus. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10 that he and the Father are one. He says, I and the Father, that's two people, but he says, I and the Father are one. This Jesus, this maker, this Creator became one of us, took on flesh and became a man. The prophet Micah points forward to the coming of the Messiah when he says in Micah 5 verse 2, quoted in Matthew, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, were too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, Who's coming forth, listen to this, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So go ahead, church, look into the manger. 
See the baby there. See the Christ child. He is the ancient one. He is the ancient of days. As we said when we covered the first three verses of John, this was not his beginning. When you and I were born, that marked our beginning. But when Jesus was born, his birth does not mark his beginning. It marks his incarnation, his taking on flesh and becoming one of us. And just as our response to the birth of any child would be to adore that child and be in awe of that miracle, so we ought to adore the Christ child. Less than a couple of weeks ago, Ryan and Sarah Lorazabal, new members of our church, had their second child, a son this time, and his name was Andrew. I had the opportunity with Susan to visit. Oh, you see him now. You're not looking at me anymore, are you? We had the opportunity to visit with them for a moment, and I had the opportunity to hold little Andrew, and I'll just tell you, well, you can see for yourself, he's adorable, as most babies are. But at least part of his being adorable is considering the miracle that he is. As I stood there in their kitchen, holding little Andrew, looking at his little feet, his little hands and arms formed perfectly, his little eyes that were just beginning to open and take in the world, his heart that was beginning to beat, his lungs that were filling with air and taking his first cries, his little mouth forming his first smiles, and to think that God formed this little Andrew in his mother's womb. What a miracle that is. We just stood there in their kitchen adoring little Andrew. Well, the same is true for Christ. The same is true for the baby that lies in the manger. We are to adore him. But our adoration of this child is due in part to who he is. He is the ancient one, the ancient of days. As the last verse to the Christmas carol that we sang earlier, O come all ye faithful, says, Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Come, let us adore him. He is Christ the Lord. So church, I wonder, how will you adore Christ this Christmas? What shape will your adoration of the Ancient of Days take? Over the next few days, as you spend time with family and friends, giving and receiving gifts, feasting on good food together, in the midst of your celebration, don't forget to be still and adore Christ. The Word became flesh. But secondly, John tells us here, not only did the word become became flesh, but it dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. The word dwelt comes from the same root for the word tabernacle. And of course, that calls to mind the tabernacle of the Old Testament. When the Israelites 
were wandering in the wilderness, God instructed them to construct a tabernacle, a, a glorified tent in which and through which he would meet with his people through the high priest. The tabernacle in the Old Testament represented God's presence with his people. And that's really what the incarnation of Christ means to us. The incarnation of Jesus means God's presence with his people. Just as God came to be with man in the tabernacle, so he came to be with man in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then, of course, we know that Matthew quotes from, the, from this very same verse in his gospel as he's speaking about the birth of Christ. And he says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is our Emmanuel. He took on flesh, he became one of us, he tabernacled with us, he dwelt with us, God with man. And this was made all the more impactful because God had not been heard from in over 400 years. In 400 years, no prophet from God had arisen. There had been no word that Jehovah God had given to his people for 400 years. And 400 years of silence was broken when God took on flesh and dwelt among his people. And you know, Jesus' arrival meant that God's people would never again be without God's presence. What good news this is for us. You, you recall, I'm sure, that after Jesus finished his work, his redeeming work at Calvary, after he was raised from the dead, before he ascended to the Father, he met with his early followers on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And he told them in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And what did he promise them? And I will be with you to the very end of the age. I'll be with you. And then he ascended to the Father. And what happened in Acts chapter 2? After he ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit came and the early believers were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You see, the Word didn't just dwell among us 2,000 years ago. He dwells among us with His people even today through His Holy Spirit, through the Spirit of God who indwells us. The incarnation of God in Christ doesn't just represent the presence of God with his people 2,000 years ago, but it represents that God is still with us today. He's still Emmanuel, and he is still with us today. And so as we pause this Christmas to adore this Christ child, we aren't just remembering that God was with his people 2,000 years ago in the incarnation. We're remembering that he is with us today as well. He's still Emmanuel 
still with us because of the incarnation. And then the third incredible statement that John makes there in verse 14. First, that the word became flesh. Secondly, that he dwelt among us. And then thirdly, that his glory is full of grace and truth. He says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Glory in the Greek is the word doxa. It's the name of our student ministry here. And the word glory stands for the sum total of all that it means to be God put on display. All, all that it means to be God made manifest. That, that's, that's what glory is. That's why John says here, we have seen his glory. We've beheld his glory. We remember the story from Matthew 17 when Jesus went aside with James and Peter and this John and went up on a mountain and there he was transfigured before them. And his glory was displayed to the three. And, and what did it look like? Matthew records that he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. It reminds us of the Shekinah glory of God that we see in the Old Testament. The glory that shone on Moses' face after Moses had spent time in the presence of God. This is, this is the same glory that, that, that shines around the angel that, that appears to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks on the hill outside of Bethlehem on the night of Jesus' birth. But remember, we're talking here about the glory of Jesus. The glory of the Logos, God incarnate. But we remember what John tells us, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this means, church, that when we are beholding the glory of Jesus, we are beholding the glory of God. In Jesus, we see displayed the sum total of all of God's attributes. They're made manifest in Jesus. We can behold them in Jesus. In Jesus, we have the manifestation of God's love and grace and mercy and holiness and perfection and righteousness. How can we turn our face away from that? How can we possibly give greater time, energy, attention, and focus to the pursuits of this world when we have the privilege of standing in the presence of this one who is the very glory of God? I find it incredibly revealing and amazing that as John is seeking to describe the glory of Jesus, all that comes out is that it is full of grace and mercy. He says, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father. And then it's as if he is trying to think of how to encapsulate and summarize the glory of Jesus. And he says, it is full of grace and mercy. Jesus is full of truth. He is full of truth. 
Jesus as the logos of God. He is the embodiment of truth. He not only speaks truth, he is truth. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And he is full of grace. Grace is when we get what we don't deserve. And what we deserve as sinners, as those who have rebelled against God, what we deserve is his wrath. What we deserve is eternal judgment because of our rebellion against him. But through Jesus' sacrificial death in our place for our sins, those who trust in Christ alone for rescue, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness and redemption, justification and reconciliation to God. And these are ours only because He is full of grace. And because He is full of grace, the Word became flesh. God became man so that through the sacrifice of this God-man, Jesus, those who deserve judgment get grace instead through faith in Jesus. And this is the great plan of redemption that was hatched in the Godhead before eternity began. That's incredible to think about. That this was the thing that he came up with long before you and I, long before Mary and Joseph, long before the patriarchs, long before Abraham, before Adam and Eve even, before there was earth, before there were stars, before the heavens were created. Long ago, before anything else was, God the Father, God the Son, along with the Spirit, got together and they made a covenant between them. They made a plan whereby God would create man in his image. And this man would betray his maker and sin against him, incurring the wrath and condemnation of his maker. But God would glorify himself by sending his son to put on flesh and become one of us, to live a perfect life and then go to the cross to die in our place so that those who trust in this son alone would be reconciled back to the father. And this was the plan. This, this was the eternal covenant that was made between Father and Son in eternity past. And then Jesus gloriously, perfectly, graciously, obediently executed that plan. Paul writes in that verse that we read from earlier and sang about earlier in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, and the fullness of time had come according to that eternal plan. According to that eternal plan, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What amazing grace for God to send His Son. What amazing grace for his son to be obedient to come and put on flesh and become one of us, live for us, and die in our place. This is why John says that he is full of grace and truth. 
And then John tells us in verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You see, Jesus embodies grace. He's full of grace. But this eternal covenant between Father and Son was not just that he would be full of grace, but that his grace would be poured out from him onto us. So that from his fullness, we would receive grace upon grace. You know, the opposite of grace is not meanness or harshness or cruelty. The opposite of grace, we could say, is justice. Justice is the equitable application of the law. The law is a line in the sand. And when we cross that line, we receive justice. Justice is merited punishment. That when we cross that line, we earn something. We we deserve, we merit something. And what we deserve is judgment and justice. But grace is unmerited favor. We can't earn it. We can't merit it. We can only receive it by faith. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is why John says in the very next verse, verse 17 of our text, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Jesus is full of grace and truth, and out of his fullness, we have received, by faith in Jesus, grace upon grace. Grace to save us from judgment. Grace to save us from what we deserve because of our sins. Grace to reconcile us back to the Father, to give us new and eternal life. Grace to sanctify us, to perfect us, to perfect that which he began in us. Grace that one day he will return to bring us to our new and eternal home. Grace upon grace is ours. Out of his fullness, through faith in his son. But here's the thing. Here's the thing to remember. Jesus was full of grace and truth long before he ever came to earth to die in the place of sinners like us. It's not as though Jesus got fuller of grace or more filled with truth after he was incarnated as a baby in Bethlehem. He had those qualities in full in eternity past, but it is in the incarnation that they are displayed, that they are made manifest, that they are made effective in God's plan to redeem sinners. In other words, we could say this, Though the incarnation is not in in and of itself efficacious in our own redemption, it is absolutely an essential and critical part of that process. Put another way, we can say that the incarnation of God in Christ is necessary for our salvation. Scottish theologian John Murray wrote this, The blood of Jesus is blood that has the requisite efficacy and virtue 
only by reason of the fact that he who is the son, the effulgence of the father's glory and express image of his substance, quoting from Hebrews 3, became himself also partaker of flesh and blood. And thus, by becoming a partaker of flesh and blood, thus was able by one sacrifice to perfect all those who are being sanctified. Or, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, in Hebrews 2, verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, the word propitiation mean, meaning satisfying God's wrath against our sin, becoming a propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, in order for him to satisfy God's wrath against the sins of man, he had to become a man. Only a sacrifice of a man who didn't have a sin nature, who had no sin in and of himself, could make propitiation for the sins of man. You see, Jesus was and is both God and man, and both are necessary for our salvation. If he wasn't God and he was only a man, then he had his own sin nature and he couldn't possibly be an atonement for us. And if he was only God and he never was also fully man, then he could not be our substitute. But he was both. He was God and as such, he was conceived not by man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin No other man can claim that. He was God. But he was also man. Born of a woman just like us. Lived as a man. Experienced life in a fallen world as we have. Was tempted in every way as we have been. Yet was without sin. And he stood in our place at Calvary. Paying the debt for every other man and woman would come to him in faith all because the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory that it is full of grace and truth so our response to this good news from john's prologue the culmination of his prologue is threefold first we ought to respond by seeking to adore the ancient one Seeking to adore this eternal Logos. And when I say adore him, I mean to live a life that is in light of the awe and wonder of the incarnation. Our adoration of the Christ child is is fueled and, and expanded as we revel in the wonder that the eternal God, the omnipotent creator, took on flesh and became one of us to reconcile us back to the Father, to save us and rescue us by faith. So press in to the wonder of the incarnation and let that fuel a life that adores Christ. Does your life, ask yourself this, does your life display the adoration of Jesus? What are you adoring What might you be adoring more than him? You know, maybe the best, the most important gift that you can offer to Jesus this Christmas is a prayer of confession that you have been adoring something or someone more than him. 
What a precious gift that would be to the Lord Jesus this Christmas. Or maybe it's not that you've been adoring other things more than Jesus, but your adoration of him is, has waned nonetheless. You've begun to take him for granted. You're grateful for him, but you can't really say that you adore him. You understand him, you believe in him academically, theologically, but it's been a long time since your heart was stirred to adore him. If that's you, friend, then listen carefully to and heed the call of that carol that we sang earlier this morning, O come all ye faithful. Listen to the first verse of that. O come all ye faithful, all ye who have faith, joyful and triumphant. That's how we approach him, because of what he has done for us, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem, come and behold him, see him, look at him, born the king of angels. Let's adore him. He is Christ the Lord. Secondly, in response to the fact that God has come down to tabernacle with us, let us now resolve to tabernacle with him. He came to dwell with us, to tabernacle with us, to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. But not only did he tabernacle with us, but as he did so, he paid the price to grant us access to tabernacle with him. Through Jesus Christ, we now have access to meet with and talk with God in prayer. We have access to the scriptures his truth. We have access to His presence through the Spirit. By grace, He has granted us access to tabernacle with the Almighty. And the question for us is, will we? This is a time of year that many of us pause. And during this downtime, we look back over the year and we kind of evaluate our devotional life the quality of it, the consistency of it. And then we look forward and we make resolutions to seek to be more faithful, more consistent in the area of Bible reading and prayer. And, and this, is, this is what I mean when I say resolve to tabernacle with the Lord. That we would see the price that was paid to grant us access to tabernacle with Him and we would endeavor to be more consistent and faithful in doing so. And I, and I think this is one of those situations where grace is a much better motivator than guilt. Because there's always a lot of guilt to go around when we talk about our consistency in our devotional life. Because reality is, could we ever really be consistent enough or faithful enough in light of what God has done for us in Christ? Of course not. The more we Instead of that, we ought to uh, allow the fullness of God's grace to be our motivator. Listen, if, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, then no matter how seldom you talk with him in prayer, no matter how seldom you pick up his book and you read it, he pours out from his fullness grace upon grace to you. Let that grace be your motivator. The more we press into the grace that is displayed in the incarnation and the crucifixion, the more humbled we will believe, be, and, and I believe, the more we will want 
to tabernacle with him. So very practically, how will you tabernacle with Jesus this year? What book of the Bible will you start with? Where will you meet with him? How will you record your prayers to him and his answers back to you? Maybe use these next few days where you have some time away from the busyness of the normal rhythms of work life and just pause to consider how you will tabernacle with Jesus this next year. He certainly deserves any effort we would make to spend more time with him. And amazingly, he's going to enjoy that time with you even more than you will enjoy that time with him, I promise you. Seek to adore him. Resolve to tabernacle with him. And then thirdly, keep the mission going. God sent his son on a rescue mission, and that rescue mission continues now through us, his ambassadors. I can think of no greater gift to offer Jesus this Christmas than a willingness to keep that rescue mission going by extending the gospel to those around you. Extending that gospel to the ends of the earth. And, and we know that the ends of the earth begins with our neighbor and literally ends with tribes, tongues, and nations. And we've been sent to both. We've been sent to both spheres, both globally in our, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces and community, and globally to the ends of the earth. So how will you be a faithful sent person locally and globally this week, next month, and next year? Which of your neighbors is God prompting you to hold out the hope of the gospel to them? Which of your co-workers has he laid on your heart who needs the hope that's only found in Christ? And how will you pray? How will you give? And how will you go? To what extent is he leading you to go to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? How will you be used by God to keep the mission going? And then finally, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, please know that the incarnation of God in Christ means that God loves you. That he sent his son to become one of us, to die in our place, so that sinners like us could be reconciled back to God through faith in Jesus. Will you trust in Christ alone this Christmas? Will you trust in Christ alone for rescue? That, that rescue mission that began over 2,000 years ago by sending Jesus in the form of a baby in Bethlehem, that rescue mission is continuing today, and that rescue mission can rescue you this morning if you will come to him repenting of your sins and trusting in this Jesus alone to save you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the beauty and the wonder of the incarnation. Father, we pray for those among us, perhaps in this very room, perhaps those who will be spending time with us over the next few days and weeks, who have not professed faith in Christ alone. Maybe they don't even acknowledge that you are God. Maybe they are confounded by some of his claims. But Father, we pray that you would use us, Lord, to continue the mission that you began so long ago, actually began in eternity past, where our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before there was even anything else. 
Father, we thank you that that rescue mission endeavored to reach us and bring the gospel to us. And Father, we, we want to be faithful to continue that rescue mission as you seek to reach others of your flock who are in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our community, those who are of your flock who are on the other side of the world. Father, use us to be faithful to continue your rescue mission, to bring them into your fold. Father, we are so thankful for the incarnation. As we behold the manger against the backdrop of the cross, we are humbled and we are floored, Father, that you would go to such an extent to reach us. We adore your Son. Help us to live a life that reflects that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.